I started the Gospel of Matthew a couple of weeks ago, and we're going to be moving through this book over the next few weeks, in particular looking at these uh, first four chapters in the Gospel of Matthew. We saw in chapter 1, particularly in verse 23, the, the amazing statement that you have given to us that God is with us. In the birth of Jesus, now God is with us. God has always desired to be with his people. Sin has always been the big problem so that a holy God cannot be with an unholy people. But we now see that God has a solution to this. And now we have Jesus with us and he is God with us in that picture. That sets up for us at Matthew chapter 2, where we're now going to look at uh, where we have the worship of the king. The picture that is given for us in chapter 2 is probably a little bit contrary to how it's been somewhat played out over the centuries and the story told. But it is really a beautiful picture as it images the, the worship that we are supposed to have for God. And so we're going to talk about this morning this worshiping of the king through three different lenses, three different groups of people as we see it in the Gospel of Matthew in the second chapter. As it opens, we're told that we are in the days of Herod, verse 1 of Matthew 2, that Jesus is born in, in Bethlehem. And we are told that we have these wise men who have come from the east. And they have come to Jerusalem. Understanding a little bit about them, I think, helps lend some color to what is happening here in this moment. You have these wise men. Some of your translations might say magi, either way. Wise men, magi. And, and so these kind of give you a strange picture, perhaps. But what we are, know about this word is that it would indicate that they were a group of astrologers or a group of magicians who would have come from Babylon, maybe Persia, maybe Arabia. But you're talking about a far distance. Uh, don't think about coming from the east as, you know, the other side of the Jordan River and here comes a couple of guys and... They're all really excited about this whole thing. And you're talking about coming a significant distance. We're talking about hundreds of miles. And to understand that these people are coming from hundreds of miles would generally indicate this is not three people. This is an entourage. This is an awful lot of people. This is a group of Gentiles who have watched the stars or are these priestly magicians and they say they have seen this star and they have gathered themselves together they've gathered their entourage and they're coming from hundreds of miles and if you grew up in the pews you know that's not a straight line you've got to go up and over because you can't go through the desert so it's going to take a long time for this whole group to make this travel all the way to Jerusalem. And it is interesting that these Gentiles have come for this, particularly the wording of verse 2, because here they are in Jerusalem, and it indicates that they are going around Jerusalem asking people, where is he who has been born the king of the Jews? There's almost this implication like it took us a long time to get here and we all know that the king of the Jews is here. We've seen his star and you surely have all gone and worshipped him. So where is he so that we can worship him? 
And I think it is interesting that you have in, in, in this picture that God has led these Gentiles from a great distance to travel all the way to Jerusalem so that they can go worship the king who has come, that they can worship the one who is called God with us. But what is interesting is that verse three does not say, and everybody goes, oh yeah, we know. We were over there the other day and we've been worshiping him the whole time. I mean, it's been months that we've been enjoying this or we have been worshiping the king. Notice that verse three says, when Herod heard this, he was troubled as well as all of Jerusalem. They hear the news of, hey, the king of the Jews is here. And they go, what are you talking about? We don't know anything about that. And rather than being excited about the news that the king that we have long awaited for, for all the pages of human history, the one who would represent God with us to save the world... They're not excited. The text says they're troubled or disturbed. They're upset. They're bothered by this. Here comes these wise men, astrologers from the east. Where's the king? We've come to worship. And the response of Jerusalem is, what are you talking about? And we don't like that news. We're troubled by that. We're disturbed by the information that has been given to us. Please note a theme that we will see throughout the Gospel of Matthew is that the king has come and Jerusalem and its leaders are not ready. The king has arrived and the city knows nothing about it. Isn't it interesting that they're not seeing a star? They're not being given information. But Gentile astrologers have traveled a huge distance because God has led them to this moment. But not Jerusalem, not Herod, not the chief priests and the scribes, not the religious leaders, but Gentiles from the East. And so you have an interesting picture as now Herod in verse 4 assembles all of the chief priests and all of the scribes of the people. He now gathers all the people in the know about the scriptures. All right, I don't know what's going on here. These guys say that they have been led to the worship of the king of the Jews, the arrival of the anointed one. Let's gather the religious leaders. Let's gather the people who know their Bible stuff and let's ask them what is going on here. And so that's what he does. He gathers them. The end of verse four, he asked of them, where the Christ, where the anointed one, the Messiah. So we're not talking about, you know, random kings. This is the one. Where is the Christ supposed to be born? And notice they say in verse 5, <clears throat> In Bethlehem of Judea. For so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. You'll probably have a note in your Bible that is a reference back to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. 
But it's important to have a sense of the context of what Micah prophesied. We've talked many times in our studies, I will keep talking about this in our studies, that when the New Testament quotes something from the Hebrew Scriptures, the intent is not just proof texting, oh yeah, somewhere in the Bible it says Bethlehem, let's use that. But it is always about the message that surrounds the quotation as well. The message of the prophet in that moment is also being conveyed as the quotation is being given. And the quotation from Micah 5 is very valuable because Micah does not simply prophesy and say, uh, a child's going to be born in Bethlehem, and then he just starts talking about something else completely different, completely random. There is a whole description through the rest of chapter 5 about what is going to happen when the child is born. You read in the very next sentence in Micah chapter 5 and verse 3 that those who have been scattered are going to return as the people of Israel. There is a, a coming back picture that's going to happen, a restoration image. The very next line says that he's going to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. That matches verse 2 as we just read here where it says that he is going to come as a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. He's going to be a ruler. He's going to be a leader. But he's going to lead by the power of God himself. Not only that, verse 4 and verse 5 says, when the child's born... The people are going to live in security and they're going to live in peace. Things are going to be radically different for God's people when this child is born. Further, they're going to be delivered from world powers. They're going to be blessed. They're going to be restored and their sins and their idols are going to be purged. The message of Micah 5 is absolutely stunning. When the child is born in Bethlehem, everything's supposed to change. The people of God are restored and they're going to come back and they're going to be blessed and they're going to live in security and their sins will be purged and their idols will be ripped out and they will be able to enjoy the blessings of God. And the reason I want you to see that is this quotation to say yes The Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Anointed One is supposed to be born in Bethlehem just as these wise men astrologers from the East say that they've come to see should have generated a stunning amount of excitement. The information matches. This is the one. This is what we've been waiting for. This is the moment. Everything is going to change. But I want you to notice ultimately what does happen instead. Notice that verse 7 gives us an interesting picture here. Herod then summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and Search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word so that I too may come and worship him. (laughs) Now, we know a little better than that. Just a few sentences later, it's going to say he's going to search out to destroy the child. But let's feign a little bit here. Oh, yes. Well, you guys go ahead and locate him for me 
so that I can come and worship him a little bit later. And I think this is an interesting contrast that's being given because notice in in verse 9 that the wise men go on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. God is making sure that these Gentiles find this king. He is going to ensure that they find him and do not miss him. And notice what it says in verse 10. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Now, I like the ESV because that is redundancy upon redundancy. They rejoiced exceedingly with joy. (laughs) There is a lot of joy in that sentence. The Greek bears that out. How else do you say you are overwhelmed with joy? They are exploding with it, rejoicing with joy beyond measure about this very moment. But that wasn't the response of Herod. Nor was it the response of Jerusalem. Remember, they were troubled. They were disturbed. They knew nothing about all of this. But the Gentile astrologers, they are overwhelmed, exceeding joy because of this. Have you thought about the interesting nature of what is pictured right here? These men have come to Jerusalem. They encounter Herod after they've been asking all kinds of citizens of Jerusalem about where is the king that has been born. And finally, this news gets back to Herod and Herod summons the wise men. The wise men say their spiel about what is going on. Herod then gets the chief priests and the scribes and says, what's this that they're talking about? Oh, yes, that's in the Bible. That's right. Micah chapter five, verse two, born in Bethlehem. When the Savior comes, everything is going to be changed. And the wise men leave and nobody goes with them. Have you ever thought about that? If this is the life-changing one, if this is the king, this is the anointed one, the one you've been waiting for, nobody says, hey, we're going to come with you. (laughs) We should follow. We want to see where he is too. We want to go worship and actually really mean it. Let's go find this. This is a game changer. This is going to change everything. Nobody does. What we see is pictured in verse 11 is that it is just these who have come this great distance. In verse 11, they go into the house. They see the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And that image is important because what you see pictured here is presenting Jesus with gifts because he's the king. And it's almost as if it is an imagery of the Gentile delegation representing the nation's from afar off coming and presenting themselves and bringing their gifts and bowing before the king and saying, we worship you as the king. And hold that in your mind because where is the Jewish representation? They didn't go. They didn't follow. 
And they're not worshiping. Matthew in chapter 2 is already setting up Jerusalem's rejection of this king. At the birth, at the very outset, it is already depicted. Gentiles from the east will worship. Jerusalem will be troubled and bothered by this. And it will be the flow of the book and the whole of the life of Jesus while he goes about preaching and teaching the good news. Let's talk about three things to make as a lesson from this that I think are very important because what we see that I think the author is trying to get us to see are three responses to the king. Three responses are depicted here for the arrival of the king, the arrival of Jesus. Their first response is the response of Herod and his response is outright hostility. In verse 12, we're told that these these wise men, these astrologers, these priestly cast uh, of magicians, they have been warned in a dream not to return to Herod. And so they departed to their own country by another way. And verse 13 tells us that Herod is about to make his search for the child to destroy him. His response is hostility. Ask yourself the question. Why is Herod hostile about this? Why is he going to spend his time trying to search for the child and destroy him? Why not search for the child and worship him? Why not search for the child and go, all right, the real king has arrived. This is the one we've been all looking for. This is the one who's going to change everything. The chief priest and the scribes just quoted the scripture to me. He's the one who will shepherd the people and lead them to paths of righteousness, peace and security. This is the one. Why the hostility? Why the hostility that you will see throughout the scriptures that Jerusalem will have against Jesus? I hope you have one single answer in your mind coming to you the hostility becomes because the arrival of Jesus represents a loss of power and a loss of control why is Herod so mad about this why is he so hostile why does he want to destroy the child why is he going a little bit later on that will Lord willing look at next week Go about trying to kill the children of Bethlehem. Why is he so about that? Because the arrival of a king means the loss of your kingship. It's the loss of your power and the loss of your control. Or if I could simplify it like this. We don't want to submit to somebody. The reason there's hostility is I want to do what I want to do. I want my power, my control, and I don't want somebody else telling me what to do. I want to be in charge. Herod wants to be in control over Judea. He wants to be king. He doesn't want somebody else to be king. He doesn't want to submit himself to his authority. He doesn't want to yield to him. He wants to have the power. He wants to have the say-so. And friends... That is the very essence of why such a significant response of people are hostile 
to the concept of Jesus as king. We want to be king. No right, no wrong, no rules for me. I'm free. I'll do what I want to do. I'll live how I want to live. You're not going to tell me what to do. Who are you to tell me how to live my life? I'm in charge of me. And I'm not submitting to anybody. And I'm not submitting to this Jesus guy. I'm running my life. That's why there's hostility. That's why Herod is hostile. And that's ultimately why there is always hostility as the primary response to Jesus. Because immediately with the confrontation of Jesus, you are making a decision. Either you will stay in charge of you or you will let Jesus be in charge of you. And if I don't want Jesus in charge of me, then I'm going to be hostile to that kingship. And I'm going to stay king. I'm going to stay in charge. I'm going to rule. I'm going to do what I want to do. I'm going to live my life. That kind of sounds like the mantra of our culture. You cannot tell me what to do. I am sovereign over my little self. And thus hostility toward anyone, any teaching, or any concept that says you do not have say over you, God does. That's what Psalm 2 was saying. Remember Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage? Why are the peoples and nations raging against the Lord and his anointed? Because that's what it's all about. It's telling peoples and nations, you have to now do what God says because the king has come. And our typical response can be to reject that, to resist it, to fight it, to be hostile to it, rather than to submit to it. The second picture that is given to us about the arrival of Jesus is seen here in the chief priests and the scribes. The response of the Jerusalem leaders is fascinating. They're called in and asked about this. They know the scriptures. They know the prophets. They know the teachings. They were revered for that. Everybody went to them about what do the scriptures say? Herod does it. And they even provide the right answer. Yes. The prophets speak of this moment. Yes. It's in Micah. Yes. He is to be born in Bethlehem. And then what do you see about them after that? Indifference doesn't move the needle. The information that the Christ has come doesn't do anything. They know the scriptures. It causes zero action. You would have thought, I'm going to follow these wise men. (laughs) I am following this entourage. They got all the way to here. Then let's attach ourselves to them and let's go find the king so that we can worship him. No, there's just indifference. Now, please note at this moment, they're not hostile. They just don't care. Yep. Scripture say there's supposed to be a king born in Bethlehem. Good night now. See you later. Thanks. Oh, he's come. Good to know. Now I'll return back to my normal life. I'm just going to keep doing what we were always doing. Nothing about what their response is. The message did nothing to their hearts. 
They did nothing to their lives. They did not have joy at the news. They did not determine to follow. There was no action. There was no searching. There was nothing. And I think it's important to observe something that Matthew is showing us here. That we can hear the news and know the scriptures and nothing happens. You can hear the news of Jesus, know the scriptures backward and forward and spin people around in circles about how you know it. And still nothing happens. I would submit to you that this is the character of many religious, spiritual people. They look the part, but there's no change. There's no action. There's no fruit. There's no life transformation. They just look religious. They're just there. They look like they care. They look like they know. And they do know on an academic level, but it doesn't do any good. It doesn't change anything. Essentially, I would put it this way. In their lives, Jesus is a mild interest, but there's not a devotion. He's a curiosity. Ah, that's interesting news. But there is certainly no devotion, no life change, nothing that shows that they are going to give themselves to him. Third and final response is clearly the response of the wise men. The response of the wise men is joy and worship. I think it is important to consider what these men have done. They have traveled a great distance. They've sacrificed much to see Jesus They will not be stopped until they find Jesus. And once they find Jesus, they will worship him and they worship him with costly gifts. I want us to see that that is the essence of worship. The whole concept of what worship means is that we will sacrifice ourselves and we will not be stopped. Until we can be in the presence of the king and sacrifice to him and give to him the gifts that we have brought. That's the essence of worship. Let me back up and ask you to think about it another way. If I were to ask you, think secularly, you know, sometimes we use the word worship in a secular sense. Like they worship that person or that sports team or that job or that relationship. You know, they worship that. What do we mean by that? Uh, The concept of worship is that you are declaring someone or something to be such a primary value in your life that you devote yourself to it. That's what we're getting at when you say, oh, you worship that thing. We're saying it's so important to you. It means so much to you. You value it so highly, whatever it is, that you now devote your life to it. You give yourself to it. To state it another way, if you don't care about it, you don't worship it, right? It doesn't, whatever, I don't care. I've used Brussels sprouts. I do not worship Brussels sprouts. I do not care. 
Nothing on me. If you don't care about something, you are absolutely not going to worship it. Here's the picture that this text is giving to us. True worship is voluntary because it comes from joy. True worship is voluntary because it comes from your desire, joy. It interests you. You devote yourself to it because it takes up a primary interest in your life. That's what you see happening here. Real worship is voluntary. Yeah, now you can make people do external things. But that's not real worship. You know that with kids. You can make them do certain things. That doesn't mean they like you at all. (laughs) Real worship, true worship is generated from the heart. It's voluntary. It exists out of true joy. That's what you see happening here in verse 10. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Joy upon joy. They have found the child and they go in and they bow down and they worship him. Here's my point. Worshiping the king means. Worshiping the king means that we want to make any sacrifice for him. It means that we joyfully seek him because we have to but because of who he is. It's joy from within us. Worshiping the king means we want to bring our gifts to him. We want to travel the long distances like them and seek him with all our might and come into his presence and bring our gifts and give our lives and submit ourselves to him. That's the essence of worship. That's what's being depicted on these pages. One king says, I don't want to sacrifice to him. I'm not giving him anything. Him being in town means I can't do what I want to do. That's right. That is what that means. Option two. eh, Take him or leave him. I'm not against him, but I'm not for him. I'm going to keep doing what I want to do. You do you, but I'm going to do what I want to do. Indifference. Don't care. But what God is seeking are people who are truly worshiping, joyfully, from the heart, desiring Him because they grasp who He is. I'll end with this text. When you have the Apostle Paul saying in Romans chapter 12 and verse 1, That in view of the mercies of God, I urge you to present yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true or spiritual worship. No one is supposed to read that and go, what a bummer. The king has come and I've got to give my life to Jesus. I guess we got to submit to him because he says I've got to offer myself as a living sacrifice. So here I am. It's 1130. We just shut up already and move on. Let's go. 
not supposed to look at them that way. You're supposed to read words like that and go, I have been wanting to worship this king because he has come to give me peace, to save my life, to rescue me, to change everything so that I can be with him for eternity and no longer be under the condemnation of sin and death and wrath, but eternity with God because God has come to be with us and I want to be with him. How can I be with him? And here's the answer. Just give yourself to him. Don't be king of your life. Let him be king of your life. Present your body as a living sacrifice and you can have it all. And that's supposed to cause great rejoicing. That's what's happening in the text. These from the east are going, yes. We have found him. We will dump everything we own. We will give him our gifts. We will submit. We will give all we can for him. I just want to ask you, what's your response to the king? The king has come. You have three options. Be hostile, be indifferent, or worship. And those who worship him are the ones who will experience the life transformation and the hope of eternity that God's promised. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, it is amazing to think that you would come to sinful people like us. Lord, thank you for loving us so deeply that you would do this. That you would send your son. That you would send your son in a way that was so common and ordinary. So that people would despise him that people would not give him the honor that he deserves. But that you did that so that he could rescue us. Lord, I pray that our hearts would always be full of joyful worship to you. Lord, forgive us for when we have been hostile to you, to your ways, to your laws, to your word, to your teachings. Forgive us, Lord, for when we have been indifferent to you, to your ways, to your laws, to your word, and to your teaching. And Lord, as you forgive us of those things, I pray that we would see the glory of your son and that that would move us to joyful worship, that he would be the primary thing in all of our lives, that he would be the only thing in all of our lives. Lord, help us as we put aside the things of this world that catch us, that make obstacles for us, that block us from the kind of relationship you want us to have. And Lord, we pray that we would be a sacrificing people, that we would be a giving people, that we would be a worshiping people from the joy that we have because of who you are and what you've done for us. Help us in this effort. And help us to share this glorious message to those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We'll sing the invitation song. We're going to invite you to come to the king because he's arrived. We're going to invite you to worship him by giving your life to him. To turn away from your sins. To confess Jesus to be the son of God, the king, the anointed, the one who is in charge of your life that you will follow, that you will obey, that you will seek after with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. 
you have not been immersed in water for the forgiveness of your sins, that is your starting point to begin with him this very day to have your sins washed away and to walk with him faithfully until the day he calls us back. Can we help you in any way? You can let us know or come forward while we stand and while we sing.